Hey, investors, Bradley here from Watson Estates, and you're listening to the largest and fastest growing podcast for Toronto real estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Today, our guest on the show is August Biniaz. We're excited to have him come on from CPI Capital, and he's going to share with us this concept of building a real estate private equity firm. Maybe you've been doing joint ventures, shareholder agreements, as I have, and you're really thinking, what is the next logical step? Are there other ways to structure my deal to really scale my portfolio, maybe even across borders or across provincial lines. Well, these are some of the topics we talk about on what does that look like and how to create a successful private equity firm that invests in real estate. If you want some of those details on how the big wigs, successful investors and general partners interact with their limited partners and with their capital partners, then this is the show for you. When you love this episode, please share it on Instagram. You can tag us at Watson Estates and support the episode overall. Hit the like and comment. Uh, if you have a question for myself or August and enjoy the show. August, thanks for joining us on the show. How are you doing? Hey, man, big pleasure to be here today. Can't, could, can't wait to have a nice discussion with you. Yeah, I'm excited. And uh, we're going to talk about a topic that I can't say I know too much about, but you clearly are an expert in uh, you and your, uh, your company there, CPI Capital. We'll get an opportunity to talk a little bit about what you guys are doing. And maybe that's a good place to start, but I'm, I'm curious Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like what got you into investing in, uh, in this space and in real estate and I guess where are you guys headed right now as a company? Yeah. Long story. I'll, I'll just briefly start with my, myself, my background. So August Biniaz, a co-founder of CPI capital, CPI capital is a real estate private equity firm with its mandate to acquire us multifamily assets while partnering with retail investors as our limited partners both Canadian and US investors. Um, and my background in real estate started a while ago, 16 years ago as a licensed agent. Um, uh, I wasn't the best real estate agent, but I was good at finding deals. Um, when you're in a, in a you know, ocean of a um, lot of fish, uh, I think over 20,000 real estate agents here in BC uh, is a very competitive market. I was good at finding deals. I was good at management, um, uh, started doing small fix and flips. Um, started my own general contracting company, moved on to building single family homes, more on the luxury side uh, and uh, both spec home and custom home. So I was hired as a builder to build homes for others. Also I would be building homes for myself, for my group of investors that initially started with friends and family. And I always wanted to scale, um, eventually did a, a multifamily project, a, t a 20 unit townhouse development project where I uh, found, the, found, the, found the project brought on the investors. Uh, I didn't have the uh, capacity to be the GC on that uh, larger multifamily project. So I brought in the GC, brought in all the professionals as well. And um, I got a portion of the profits. I fell in love with that model, this idea of finding the deal, finding the investors and getting the portion of the profit and kind of started my journey on uh, the real estate private equity realm. Um, and, um, that's, that's where I am today. Uh, you know, I co-founded CPA capital a couple of years ago, but at some juncture, I realized that the asset class I was involved in the ground up development project here in Vancouver, uh, wasn't as glamorous as it's uh, made to be, uh, you know, sounded a lot of large, uh, in, um, development firms have bought properties on pennies on the dollar, and it's a lot easier to scale. It's actually pretty difficult business to scale. Uh, you know, as a, as a smaller uh, developer. Uh, but when I looked to the US, I realized that there was a business model that was much easier and, uh, to achieve, which was 
multifamily uh, syndication business model that rather than doing a ground up development, you could buy an already built apartment building, do some small renovation and then, uh, you know, sell it in three to five years while partnering with investors. But we can get more into that if you like. Yeah, definitely. So very good, good intro. And I love to hear that backstory and, and where you've come through. I think a lot of investors will be able to resonate with that. And we'll have investors that are like, whoa, like this is just 10 steps ahead. But even knowing what that could, that map looks like, I think will be very helpful. And I guess to kind of start us off, and, and I want to really dive into every aspect of how would someone want to, if someone wants to start this private equity firm in the real estate business, like you're doing, how would they do that? And that's really where I want the show to go. But I think we need to kind of, I guess, define what we're talking about a little bit. And I think you did it a bit in your intro there, but I, for me personally, for our listeners, they know like we do joint ventures and they're a lot smaller deals. It sounds very much like what you were doing, you said out in, in Vancouver, but there is definitely, like you mentioned syndication. And then when we talk about private equity firm, could you just explain for our audience kind of what those differences are, what that transition looks like? Um, yeah. Just give us a little bit of a, a scoop on that. So we kind of can frame where we're, where we're headed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's. I'll, I'll start up by first defining what private equity is. Private equity, I mean, the name is in it, right? Private equity, private capital. And the, the, the difference between private and public is you're raising uh, capital from private individuals, either institutions, family offices, uh, institutional investors, or retail investors, high net worth investors, accredited, not accredited investors. That's the realm you're raising capital from. You're not going to the public markets. You're not going through an IPO to raise capital. So private equity firms historically um, are raising private capital to buy companies and um, you know uh, make them perform better and then exit those companies. The real estate private equity space is companies that are focused on buying real estate assets while raising private capital. Um, and um, uh, kind of the, the, the progression, the transition and, uh, you know, the progression that I went through was was out of a need. So um, when you're buying, uh, when the goal is to continuously buy apartment buildings, continuously follow the value add model, uh, you're in need of, you know, consistent flow of equity. And um, that's when you're basically managing a real estate private equity firm. You're consistently raising capital, consistently uh, connecting with investors, cultivating and nurturing relationship with investors. And then on the other side, you're continuously underwriting deals, doing due diligence and uh, putting deals under contract and acquiring and managing projects. So the company is kind of divided into uh, those two spheres. Now, syndication is another phrase uh, is synonymous with uh, real estate private equity. Syndication is just a process where it means that two groups coming together for the for a combined um, a mission and one one of the one of one uh, a few groups of uh, few members of the group are the management group and the other uh, members of the group are bringing capital or they're silent partners. But that silent portion is very important because in most cases in real estate private equity deals or syndic syndicated deals, uh, the structure that's used is a limited partnership. And what a limited partnership is is a is a partnership between a general partner and a limited partner. A general partner um, has uh, manages the project, finds the deal, brings on the investors, basically manages the whole deal, and the investors are just silent partners. And the reason they're called limited partners is because they have limited liability. Their liability is all on the general partner. So this partnership allows for uh, for them to do a business deal. Um, and I, I love the kind of the, the this model because. It is the, the investors, the limited partners, 
um, is, is, is very aligned with the limited partners, uh, profits and their, uh, you know, it's a very risk averse process for limited partners. So you can get more into that if you like. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds as though the activities haven't changed in that you're essentially finding deals, finding investors, but there's clearly a formality that's built in in a process and almost a business built around funneling those two categories. And clearly with limited partnership, a structure that is different. Um, so it just sounds like you guys are, are doing joint ventures, you know, uh, equity partner type of deals in a much more formal way where an investor can, I guess, have a level of confidence knowing you guys, you know, have done many of these similar deals and there's a steady flow. So it sounds to me and, and pardon my ignorance, it sounds a lot more um, just like a structured version of what a lot of investors, even in the GTA are probably running around impersonating today. Would that, would that be a fair statement? It is, but there's also a, a, a important difference between doing a JV and doing a limited partnership or private equity structure is that in a JV, your partners are not silent. They're involved. Right. They, could, they could come in and, uh, you know, they, they have a say within, within the limited partnership structure, the private equity structure, the limited partners are silent. They're signing a 200-page uh, subscription agreement, uh, you know, explaining that, that their position is totally silent, that they trust the general partner to make all the decisions, uh, you know, uh, as far as, uh, you know, the capital expenditure, as far as the exit strategy, as far as, uh, you know, the whole time, the, you know, all, all those are the decisions, whereas a JV is much more involved, much more hands-on. And also on the compliance side as well, if you have a JV, uh, you know, the compliance aspect of it is not as uh, re restrictive as it is when you're dealing with private capital. As soon as you're, you're raising capital from private investors, uh, that's when you, uh, you know, have to oblige by um, security compliance across Canada and the U.S. if you're raising capital on both sides. You actually hit that. That was going to be my next question is what does it look like from a compliance? So obviously we have securities. Are there other, um, I guess, weight that you, another, like another, what's the term like weight or baggage, let's say that you guys as general partners need to carry beyond those compliance as well. Um, given, I guess, to maintain that protection of the limited partner and, um, I guess, credibility as a, as a general partner. Yeah, no, exactly. So what, one important part of our business is uh, as the limited partners, uh, when they invest, they receive limited partnership units. Those units are considered securities. So a portion of our business is the sale of securities. And uh, I, I, I mean, that's a very important part of our business. And uh, we have to, uh, uh, you know, oblige by the security compliance across Canada, depending on any province that we're raising capital in. So the decision that CPI Capital has made is that we've partnered with an exempt market dealer and uh, our securities are actually sold through the exempt market dealer rather than being sold through CPI Capital. So the EMD that's licensed through multiple provinces that we sell our securities in, that EMD conducts the KYC and KYP. So they do a KYP and know your product on us or on our firm and on every deal that we bring to our investors. And they do a KYC, know your client on every investor who wants to invest with us to ensure that an investor uh, is the right product for them. If it's somebody that got $20,000 in the bank and that's their last $20,000, you don't want to invest that whole money, but it doesn't really make sense, right? That's where it's the risk. So you guys do take on um, private investors who are not accredited as well? It allows you to kind of reach beyond just accredited investors or obviously close friends and family? Not so far. So, uh, uh, you know, till this moment, we've only dealt with accredited investors. 
Um, and uh, but we are taking the steps to allow for non-accredited investors to join as well. There's an exemption called the crowdfunding exemption um, that allows us to bring on non-accredited investors, which we're exploring with our um, with our uh, legal advising team. Cool. Yeah, I mean, you guys obviously have structures and you understand that legality. And what what terrifies me is that a lot of folks. Um, doing joint ventures are doing the things that they shouldn't be doing in that they're they're trying to look more like a, a general partnership, limited partnership, and they're not following those proper procedures. So I guess uh, to heed some warning to some of our listeners is if you're going to start to go in this direction where you know, you're bringing on securities. I mean, we even have, what's interesting to me here is you guys have a structure in place and you're aware of how to bring on non-accredited investors. And yet even still it's taken this long and you haven't yet done that. So I guess let that be a bit of a warning for people running around trying to market their product on Facebook to raise capital. You can really get yourself. And I've seen investors get into some pretty hot water. So, yeah. Okay. No, as far as the marketing side of it, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not an expert. It's very great when it comes to marketing a deal, but when it comes to a joint venture, if you create a company and you buy this company with your joint venture partner, you've already triggered um, uh, compliance. You've already sold. Those are considered securities that you just sold. So you've already triggered the private issuer exemption, even if you have one investor who's partnered with you. So just keep that in mind. And securities, uh, security commissions are can can oversee uh, can uh, you know. Uh, instruct you and oversee you and and basically make the recommendations if needed so just so, assume, so just to i guess speak that back make sure we're clear so if you find a deal and you locate an investor after finding that deal you qualify under securities the moment that you you are ma- allowing someone to invest with you and they've they've now if you've done it through a structure of a corporation or you've got you guys have partnered up You've already triggered um, uh, the, you know, the, the securities um, regulations. So you're yeah. already being overseen by the Securities Commission in the province you raise capital from or in the province that you created that partnership from. Good insight. Love it. Okay. So let's get into the different, I guess, aspects of what you do. And we'll kind of maybe break it down by segments. And forgive me if I miss a category, but maybe we'll start off by locating deals. I think a lot of people are like, how do I find these deals? You're doing it on a multifamily space in large uh, real estate portfolio, but you obviously have a history all the way through. So I'm curious, how does CPI Capital or you personally, how do you locate the deals that you see as value add opportunities that would be beneficial and obviously provide a nice return to your investors? Absolutely. It all starts with the region. So obviously we're, we're investing only in the U.S. And the reason for the U.S. is that when I initially wanted to focus on uh, the business model of multifamily value add, what it means is you buy on already existing apartment building or an already existing apartment community, which we're buying recently. And the difference is an apartment building is just an apartment building and a community is, is uh, multi, it could be multiple buildings. It's got a um, amenities, uh, you know, a pool, a gym, and, and other amenities within that uh, complex. So you're buying the whole community. Um, uh, so in, within that business model, uh, the general partner or the total, the whole partnership is profiting from the rental income, from the rent cash flow, and from the back end profits when the value add business model is been completed and the project is sold. Um, what we realized early on is to duplicate this model here in Canada was going to be impossible because the rent to value ratios are so low, the rental yields are so low. Um, now, some people might hear this and say, no, I, I found this great multifamily deal that it was cash flowing. Yes, 
that, you know, unicorns can be found, you know, diamonds in the rough could be found, but it's not a consistent business model, which, which is the norm. Whereas in the U.S., particularly in the Sunbelt states, it's the norm to be uh, cash flowing, you know, uh, in, in, in Toronto, uh, most of Ontario and Vancouver, you got cap rates around two and a half, three percent. And in most of these Sunbelt states, the cap rates are at five percent. So it allows for that uh, cash flow to come in, um, you know, and when you do a conventional mortgage at 70, 30, uh, from the rents you collect, you can pay your mortgage payment, taxes and fee, a third party property manager, and still have a surplus to give uh, cash flow distributions back to your investors. So we knew right away that we want to be in the US. Also, many other reasons for the US. You got over 300 million people, you got an interstate migration happening in the US. Uh, you know, you got people with one of the highest incomes uh, in, in the, uh, uh, you know, in, in the de developed world. Uh, and also that ratio of income to uh, to rent is is very high so it's a great place to be involved in uh, you know uh, in the rental business is a great place to be around the world and so far i haven't found a country that has a higher rent to value ratios than than in the us so so it starts with a region so that's that's kind of my uh, uh, my thesis on the us now the regions we we look at the sunbelt states uh, these red states republican states which are very tax friendly and business friendly starting from the west coast nevada arizona texas um, florida north and south carolina georgia and there's also interstate migration happening people are moving out of california new york moving to these states lower cost of living um, you know um, and many jobs many fortune 500 companies are moving there as well because they get a lot of tax benefits as you can see with uh, elon musk and tesla and many other companies so starts with the region initially finding out what is the best region to be in what's the region that shows consistent growth consistent job growth population growth income growth and rent growth and as long as those uh, growth measures have been shown in the last few years the, you know the chances of them continuing is very high so that's the region we want to be in and then we work with our asset manager um, uh, and we have two separate business models either we partner with an active operator in that region who acts as our boots on the ground or we look for our own deals to acquire it directly so um yeah that's to answer your question in a very long way no, but you know what? I love the I love the thought process, and I think there's a lot of relatable info in there. And even when people are looking at local deals, like that is very much the criteria. It's also what has a lot of people terrified about the market in Ontario. So there, we have a lot of these same benefits, but there are some that have obviously, when you talk about rents to uh, cost of purchasing a property or rents to income, we don't really fall in that top metric. Um, so I could I could see a lot of people and I've talked to a lot of investors that can resonate with the things you're saying. Um, I find it interesting at the tail end there, you said you work with operators in the area. And I think a lot of people are nervous about crossing borders or provincial lines because they don't feel like they have the ability to to manage at a distance. But I love how you just kind of like added that in there. Like we, you know, we'll connect with an operator. And I think recognizing that those operations are available and willing to work with you, of course, would, uh, would actually be a, an eye, although it's simple, I think it will open up a lot of eyes. So I'm curious, how do you, how does that relationship work within your current structure? Are they also locating the deals? I guess the kind of, now that we've located our, our, where we're going to be investing, how do we then find those deals? How does that kind of on the ground operation take place, whether through this um, connected operator or through your corporation. Absolutely. And, and before I get into that, let me just make a important dis distinguish uh, man here 
because if you're a passive investor and are looking to invest in a syndication into a real estate private equity firm and then to invest with a U.S. operator, I would strongly suggest against that because most deals are structured in the U.S. in, a, in an LLC, a, a, a type of structure that we don't even have here in Canada. We have limited partnership or a corporation. In the U.S., they have limited partnership, LLC, or a corporation. This, a, uh, you know, this kind of a combination of a corporation and a limited partnership, which is LLC, is actually not tax efficient. And a lot of times Canadian investors have invested in these um, investments and they've, they've got double tax. That means they're paying, uh, you know, close to 70% of their profits in taxes, both in the U.S. and, and in Canada. So, so but as, if you're looking to, as an active investor, looking to start investing in the U.S., then I definitely recommend uh, the, the um, the, the the option of partnering with an operator in the U.S. that acts as your boots on the ground. So that's kind of just get that out of the way. Now, when it came well, well, to sorry, C just to, to to leave that off as well. What is what is the structure that you've seen best executed for Canadians investing in LLCs or in corporations in the U.S.? So again, it 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 goes a bit different. So so for us, since we uh, actually um, uh, since we manage a real estate private equity firm, we have to raise capital into a Canadian fund from yep. our Canadian investors. And then on the US side, we create a US fund. So the Canadian fund invests into the US fund, just as another limited partner, and then US investors, they can invest directly into the US fund. So that's the structure we use. But that structure might might be too costly and cumbersome for an individual looking to invest directly into a, a, a US syndicated investment. So what would, so that's great. So what would that individual do if they didn't have those hoops to jump through or they didn't need that kind of process? If someone had one partner, you know, my uncle's putting in money and I'm going to be managing it in the US, what would that individual be best to do? Would they just simply open up a corporation in one of these states, send the money over and invest? Just that simple? Or is there a process that needs to be set up for them as well? They definitely need to discuss it with their accountant about how to go about doing it and what's the best strategy for their situation. Also, one of the main questions they want to ask is repatriation of funds. Are they investing capital in the U.S.? Are they planning for those funds to come back? Do they continuously want to reinvest in the U.S.? So those questions come in. And is, is the partner that they have in the U.S. just a U.S. operator that they're investing with, or is that person connected to them? Are they part owner of that entity in the US. So all those things come into into play and makes it, comp, uh, comp, uh, makes it more complex. But one advice coming from me directly is don't ever as a Canadian invest into a, a LLC in the US. If done directly or if done through a, a entity you create in the US, being a, a corporation, being a limited partnership or your own LLC, if the deal is structured in an LLC, it will not make it tax efficient for Canadians. Good advice. All right. Let's talk about some of these deals. So how have you seen these these uh, babies pop up in an organic yeah, way yeah, for your we're, corporation? We're definitely getting into that. So 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 our situation was when we started CPA Capital, uh, our mandate, our goal was to bring in the best possible investment for our investors. And that was institutional multifamily assets. And institutional meaning that an asset is, you know, in today's uh uh, you know, in today's case is 200 plus stores. And we're talking about a large multifamily asset. And the reason they're called institution is historically institutions would invest in these assets. So 
that was our mandate, bringing institutional quality assets to investors. And we're still, we were still a smaller firm, still connecting with investors. Uh, you know, we were very much involved on the content creation side and the educational side of things. We realized that a lot of our time is being spent on cultivating and nurturing relationship with investors. Uh, we had our uh, underwriting team, we had our asset manager in-house, uh, but it made sense for us to partner with an active operator that was going to conduct a lot of our work on the ground in the U.S. Uh, so that's when we came up with this business strategy. And we noticed that the same business strategy was used, being utilized on, on the large scale side, on the institutional side. We noticed that the Canadian Pension Fund in uh, partner with Graystar, one of the largest multifamily, I think is the largest multifamily uh, operator in the U.S., to invest in the U.S. So we realized, hey, this is already happening on the institutional side. We could, we could uh, you know, mimic the same model. So we ended up partnering with multiple groups. Now, obviously, we put those groups through a, uh, a detailed vetting process, and we had certain um, requirements for the group. For example, they had to have at least $100 million of assets under management. They had, to, they had to have taken deals through its full cycles and returned capital to their investors. Uh, they, had, they had to have never lost investors' capital. And there was also a level of transparency we needed from them to communicate with their past investors, with their law firms, with their accounting firms, and what have you. So that's the business model we, we utilized at that stage to partner with our, our U.S. partners to acquire these assets and for them to be our um, you know, boots-on-the-ground asset manager as well. Very good. Okay. Uh, so I think, I think that's good for locating these deals. And, and I love, I love the way you've leveraged the local talent and kind of positioned yourself with people that are doing well. So now on the capital raising side, which clearly is, I guess that the other major component and, and actually, actually, after we're done discussing this, I'd love to see if there's any other categories that meet people often ignore that makes a successful, um, equity business that you guys are private equity business you guys are running, but for the sake of raising capital, what is the primary way that you guys, obviously you have a system of vetting and we, we don't need to go into the, the securities aspect again, but how do you attract that capital? A lot of people are stuck on that side and they're wondering, what do I do? And I'm curious, what are some of the strategies you found has worked? No, for sure. I'll get into it. So uh, there are people who are, you know, uh, very lucky and gifted. Um, you know, I was reading a book about Steve Schwartzman, um, the founder of Blackstone, and all he did is when he quit his job at, the, at working with one of the big banking firms, he just made a few calls to a few institutions out of Japan and a few other places, and he had easily raised, I believe, it was $300 million on his first, uh, first fund. So that, that's not going to be the case for most of us looking to uh, do real estate deals. So, for example, I'll kind of walk everybody through my journey when as a single family and a multifamily ground up developer here in Vancouver, um, I believe that that when I if I would bring these great opportunities in the US that were made much more profitable than the deals that I've been working on over the years because they provided cash flow, they provided uh, better returns on the exit, but also an ability for, for force appreciation because we would go on and do the, uh, uh, you know, the value add business model. So it had a trifecta and brought the risk much lower and the chances for returns much higher. I believe when I brought these deals to the investors who have, I had in the past made a lot of money for millions of dollars in some cases that they would just jump on and, you know, uh, come on and invest with us. But the process wasn't as easy or wasn't as quick as I thought because you're talking about a deal and Florida. They're like, hey, uh, you know, uh, great. I like to vacation in Florida, but how does this work? Now I got to deal with the IRS 
uh, you know, other other issues. So it wasn't as easy as I thought. Also, even if I, all of the investors that I'd worked with would have invested with us, we needed a continuous machine because we're buying these large institutional assets. We're talking about, you know, tens of millions of dollars. The smallest deal so far we've acquired has been $30 million USD. So the amount of equity needed is consistently needs to be there. So we knew that we needed this machine to be continuously working. So um, we explored going through uh, the, the broker route, the exam market a dealer route, but we realized the cost of capital on that route is very high. You're looking at between seven and 10% for cost of capital. And in our business model, that didn't really make sense because the whole partnership pays for that cost of capital. It's not CPI or it's not the investors, it's all of us paying for it. And it didn't really make sense. So the route that we took was the content creation, the educational route, the becoming thought leaders in the space. That if you're Googling um, Canadians investing in the U.S. that you would see either August Benias, Ava Benesaki, one of our other leadership uh, team members, or CPI Capital. So it would it would funnel investors to us. At which time they can see us, they can know us, they can like us, they can trust us, and eventually invest with us. So that's the route we took. Um, obviously, we have to again comply by uh, security securities regulation. We're going to have to go a little bit more into different exemptions that exist, but that's kind of the route that we took. Um, yes. I love that. I love it. Do you find most people who do invest with you have had a portfolio in the past or do you get more, I guess I, you, you mentioned you did accredited. So I would assume that they've got at least some kind of portfolio playing out in the back. I do like the concept. I think it's clever um, knowing that the deal is so good. How can you pass it up? Not to mention, I know from my experience in raising capital, when people feel like you're adding value. So if they feel like you're walking in and simply, you know, you're just taking my money and buying something I could have bought. It's a, it's a very hard no. But as soon as you introduce them to a concept, i.e. doing a, you know, the set, some of these setups you guys currently have with properly set up and thought through with operators and having that system in place makes that yes a lot easier. So I can definitely see how that would play out and at least not work against you where I think a lot of people are maybe fighting an uphill battle because they're not actually adding true value. They're just, you know, panhandling. Exactly. So there's a great book, um, um, Magnetic Marketing, and it goes over that kind of adding value and uh, giving something uh, right up front, which then brings the person in. And it could be utilized on all different types of doesn't have to be real estate, private equity, but it could be used in any business, really. Yeah. So do you do you have any category? So obviously you've got these two big behemoths. You've got finding deals, raising capital. Is there other? Is there a new category that you guys have kind of found, or something that fits somewhere in between that allows you guys to run more efficiently than than say any other um, you know equity private equity firm that's that's operating today? It's really the marketing, right? So you, it's all the marketing, it's all creating all that content that creates the funnel, brings the investors in, they go through a nurture process, they get to know our, uh, you know, our firm, they get to know our team, they get to know our, our, our leadership team, a lot of content, a lot of uh, values being added to the investors. And in our case, we're not managing a fund. So we're not continuously raising capital and continuously acquiring deals. We do syndic syndicated deals. So we're project specific. So as they're, uh, you know, in their investment journey and they're the process of getting learning about us and receiving our weekly newsletter, then it, we have a deal that comes in that email goes out to our investor community. We advise them that we have a deal under contract. There's a webinar coming up. Everybody's invited to our webinar uh, where we go over the deal with our investors 
And at which time then they have an opportunity to do a soft reserve and eventually turn that soft reserve into an actual investment and transfer funds. I'm curious. So what does a guy that's reached the level that you have do next? Um, do you guys have any intention of eventually going public? Is that, is that a natural progression at some point? Or do you see this kind of being the end? Um, I'm curious. We've obviously seen you go all the way through these steps and a lot of people, you know, would idolize or at least want to copy in some capacity. So where, where does a guy like you look to go next or where does this eventually lead um, when you're kind of sitting down and thinking about the next 10 years? Yeah, the, the natural progression seems to be going public into finally a REIT. And you can see that with Sam Zell, who started in uh, student housing many years ago in the 70s, I believe. And now uh, he has largest, uh, you know, real estate REIT in the U.S. Uh, but for us, I mean, there's a lot of steps before getting there. So there's a lot of milestones for us to achieve prior to getting to that spot. Um, uh, so the next, I mean, some of the milestones that we have, uh, we have, you know, internal discussion is being at a, a billion dollars of assets under management. We're still looking to grow our own asset management team in the regions that we are very focused in as well. Uh, so there, there's a bunch of different milestones. Also, there is a route of also having a fund alongside our syndicated investments. So that's another project progression a lot of teams go through is that they, they do their project specific syndicated deals, but they also have a fund. So if you have an investor that comes in, they can then invest into your fund because they don't have just capital sitting around waiting for your next deal. So it's just, you know, having that consistent deal flow, having that consistent investor um, you know, uh, onboarding process and merging both. But yes, great question. Though. Great question. All right. So I'm sure we've got people at, at different levels that probably have questions and want to reach out, maybe, you know, chat a little bit about some of the deals, which we haven't even gotten into any of those. I'm sure there's plenty of good stuff there too. Uh, where can our audience as they want to reach out? Because um, clearly you guys are inbound and ready to, to chat. Where are they best to locate your, your team at CPI Capital? Absolutely. Our website, cpicapital.ca. I'm also personally very active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, August Biniaz on LinkedIn, or um, you can also search CPI Capital on LinkedIn. I'm sure it comes up and mention that you heard, uh, you know, uh, heard me on uh, Watson States. So then I'll, I'll go ahead and book a call with you, a 15 minute complimentary call. And if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to answer it, but make sure you mention the show. Sounds good. August, thanks, my friend. Appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some definitely new information and hopefully get people really excited about where their real estate journey is headed. Absolutely. My pleasure.